Over the last few months, as our country has grappled with some of the questions about race and how Christians have participated or failed to participate well in racial reconciliation over the last couple centuries, there have been a lot of uncomfortable stories that have come out. One of the stories that really struck me was in the 1840s, there was a Baptist minister in the South who had memorized the entire New Testament and was a virulent supporter of slavery. That antidote, when I read it, struck me so harshly because I, I just felt, how could someone know the Bible so well and yet be blinded to what, to me, seems so clear? I think about how the New Testament consistently encourages the dignity of every person. How can someone have memorized that and advocate for the inhumane treatment of anyone? Or I think about how the New Testament condemns the stealing of other people and First Timothy, or how it encourages Philemon to set his, uh, how, how, how Paul encourages Onesimus to set Philemon free. And I think, how could anyone memorize those passages and yet be so blinded to what, um, what God desires? Well, I wish that was just an antiquated problem. I wish that um, we could have hope and confidence that we're not blinded to such truths like that. But like we're going to see in the passage today, there's an uncomfortable truth. S sometimes the people who know the Bible best can be blinded to some of its sweetest truths. In today's passage from Matthew 22, we're going to see that the people in Jesus' day who knew the Bible best, the Pharisees, couldn't even begin to wrap their minds around what it said plainly about the Messiah. This problem, this unwillingness to see what is clearly in Scripture, caused the Pharisees to miss out on the great opportunity of Jesus in their midst. And the question that it raises is for all of us. How are we blinded to what God says in his word for us? Now, the skeptic or the cynic might say, see, this is a problem you guys have as Christians. You, just, you, you need to just ignore the Bible, and that'll help you see more clearly. But, but of course that's not true, right? There's no one in Scripture who we see where their ignorance of the Bible causes them to be more virtuous, nor do we see that plainly played out in our culture or in our history as a country. In fact, what we see in the Pharisees is a warning for all of us that the intoxication that comes with knowing God's Word can sometimes blind us to the doing and acting on God's Word. Well, let's get into the passage today from Matthew 22. Scripture is God-breathed, it is worth examining in detail, and we have to be people who not only hear what it says, but change our minds as a result. In Matthew 22, Jesus confronts the Pharisees about this common question of who is the Messiah. It comes in a series of debates that first the Sadducees and then the Pharisees have come to Jesus with questions in intended to trap them. Just as a reminder, if these, those terms don't mean anything to you, during Jesus' day, the Sadducees were similar to what we might think of as uh, the religious liberals of today. They're people who had a small group of beliefs and a lot of power. The Pharisees were people who had an expansive set of religious beliefs, but little political power. So we think of certain religious conservatives today. And both of them agreed on very little, except that they didn't like Jesus, both the liberals and the conservatives. And so in verse 41, 
Jesus challenges the Pharisees with this specific question. Matthew twenty-two forty-one. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. Now this question on its surface seems remarkably easy, kind of like the Sunday school teacher whose every, the answer to every question is Jesus. Every person in Israel, Pharisee, Sadducee, would have quickly been able to say that the Messiah would be the son of David. Think about passages from 2 Samuel, from Micah, from elsewhere, where it makes really clear in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come from David's line. And just as a reminder, who's David from the Old Testament? He was the most powerful, influential, and politically successful king that Israel had had up to that point. And perhaps most importantly, he's the one who was able to unite the country and drive out its enemies. The Pharisees had essentially founded their school of thought on the idea that if Israel would just obey the law completely, sufficiently, and entirely, then God would send a successor to David to drive out Rome. They had nationalistic ambition and fervor that this new Messiah would cause the land to be purified by his power and by his political success. That's what they were looking for. And when Jesus asked them, whose son would he be? It was like throwing red meat to the Pharisees. This is the thing they cared about most. And yet we're going to see in a second that Jesus intends this question to be the beginning of a trap. After all, Jesus was a son of David, right? Shouldn't they be looking for someone just like him? He was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Throughout the Gospels, we see that people know that he's a descendant of David. We see even a blind man calling out to him, referring to him as son of David, right? He is the descendant in a biological sense, according to earthly lineage, of the sort of person they should be looking for. And yet the Pharisees are deeply opposed to him, not because of biblical grounds, but because he doesn't give them the nationalistic hope that they had. They were hoping the son of David would drive Rome out, and Jesus keeps talking about his kingdom as if it has no earthly effect in the way that they had hoped. This is why it's important that this question is directed from Jesus to the Pharisees and not the Sadducees. It's not that the Sadducees didn't believe in the Messiah, but it just wasn't very important to them. They had become very comfortable working with Rome, working within the political system of their day, whereas the Pharisees had stuck, had stuck all of their hopes really on the Messiah. And so when Jesus asked them who the Messiah is and whose son he is, he's setting them up for an uncomfortable moment. And then here's where it comes in verse 43. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit, by the way, notice Jesus' belief in what the Bible is there, right? He believes that David writes the Psalms in the Spirit, under the authority and direction of the Spirit. Jesus believes in a high view of Scripture, that Scripture is God-breathed, it is complete, it is perfect, it is able to correct us and transform us. Jesus' doctrine of Scripture, if we just had this one verse, is that Scripture is worth examining, memorizing, reflecting on, and being changed by, that there's nothing that Scripture affirms that is not worth learning from and is not true. Right, anyway, how is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? This at first kind of sounds like an obscure riddle. And I, I, I got to be honest, on Monday or Tuesday of this week, when I was thinking about what I was going to say about this sermon, I just kept scratching my head. And as I've had the benefit of getting to think about this passage for the last five days, um, which I'm, I'm convinced part of why God made me a pastor is so that I will be forced to think about scripture this much because it really has, uh, has been helpful for me. I've been struck by how profound this quotation from Psalm 110 really is. This, this comes from a part of the Psalms that was often considered a, a, a precursor of the Messiah. What would the Messiah be like? This was a passage that no doubt the Pharisees had memorized, that the people he was talking to were intimately familiar with. And Jesus says, but have you noticed this? As you've memorized it, as you've learned it, have you reflected on it? Have you noticed what it says? It says, the Lord said to my Lord. And then Jesus, in verse 45, makes clear what he means. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Now, a cultural note that'll help us understand why Jesus thinks of this as such a, an important question to ask is that in Jesus' day, and somewhat in ours as well, there was an expectation that the father would always be greater than the son. Now, as Americans, we hope for something better for our kids than what we had. That's sort of the American concept of what it means to have successors. We're an optimistic country. We think that in general, things should get better for each success, succeeding generation. And when it's not, when that does not look like it's going to be the case, we become profoundly discouraged about it, and we use that as an argument that things need to change. But we hope, we pray, we work so that our kids will have a better life than we'll have, right? That was not necessarily the frame of Jesus' culture. In Jesus' culture, the expectation was that the Father would be of more glory than the Son. Now, the reason I bring that up is, Jesus, embedded in Jesus' question is, if David who's the most important figure in national history, says the Messiah is going to be his son, how is he not just surpassing David, but to the point that he would call him Lord? How could the Messiah be greater than David? Well, Jesus means this not just as a reflective question, but as a challenge to their concept of what the Messiah would be like. Remember, for the Pharisees, the Messiah was a nationalistic figure, right? He was the hope of the country. He was going to deliver Israel from the evil, oppressing peoples around them. And Jesus wants to expand their view of who the Messiah is for and what the Messiah can do and how the Messiah will do it. And he says, oh no, the Messiah is not the lineage alone of David. He is the one who was pre-existent, who was there before David existed. How could David refer to his successor, his descendant, as existing before him? In these couple verses, we see David's view of the Messiah, or, or the Spirit's view of the Messiah, speaking through David, that he would exist from eternity past, or at, or at least, based on this passage, from the time of David past. That he would sit at the right hand of God. Hear what Martin Luther says about this. Martin Luther, on this passage, says, God says to him, sit, not at my feet, not over my head, but next to me, 
as high as I sit. But sitting next to God, what else is that than being also God? For God is so jealous for his honor that as he says himself in Isaiah, he will give it to no other. And yet here, says the psalmist, sits one who is like him. Luther concludes, from this it follows that he must be God himself. Think, think about that. Think about what Jesus is describing of himself to the Pharisees. Last week we heard from Pastor Justin a wonderful sermon on the transfiguration, and it, it elicited in me and maybe in you this longing, like, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have seen that moment. I wish I could have participated in that. Um, and what Justin mentioned was how rare and how narrow the group of people were that got to see that, right? Just the, the three disciples who come with him for that moment. And yet, Jesus comes down the mountain and later in his life explains to everyone present, his disciples, the Pharisees, everyone else, that based on scripture, that they're seeing very God, a very God himself. This is striking because when Jesus wants to make clear something based on experience in the Gospels, he tends to do it to a small group of people. When he wants to make it clear to everyone, he does it based on them seeing it in Scripture. Therefore, it's transferable to all generations. And it's not just that he has the divine seat, that he sits next to God, that the Messiah is a very nature God in that sense, but he's also referred to by a divine name, right? The Lord said to my Lord. In Greek, in, in this passage, it's the same word. It's kurios. The kurios said to my kurios. In the quotation from Psalm 110, it's Yahweh said to Adonai. But in either case, the point is that um, Jesus says the Messiah is not just the son of David, but he's the very Lord himself. This is, should provoke wonder in all of us that the Messiah existed not just as a successor to David, a lesser light in his lineage, but as the greater David, the one that David pointed to, the one who has existed before the time of David, who sits next to God and who waits for the time to conquer all enemies. Not the nationalistic small enemies that the Pharisees were worried about, but the great enemies of sin and death. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, when he comments on this passage from Psalm 110, he says that the last enemy to be defeated is death itself. When Jesus says the Messiah is the one whose enemies will be made a footstool for his feet, the Pharisees are thinking of small hopes, nationalistic hopes in the moment. And those small hopes blinded them to the greater truth that the enemies that Jesus would conquer were sin and death. The Pharisees thought the Messiah would come and rule through small means, means of power and of military success, and it blinded them to the idea that Jesus would rule through greater sacrifice, even giving up his life on the cross. One commentator says, because they had the wrong conception of the Messiah, thinking of him as a human warrior rather than a divine savior, they failed to see him in Jesus. Now, if this problem was only a problem for the Pharisees, if only the Pharisees fell prey to how their prejudices, their preconceptions, their ambitions, and their selfishness blinded them to what's in Scripture and blinded them to what God could do, we could just wag our fingers at them and say, those stupid Pharisees, I'm glad I'm not like one of them. But we look in our own national history, 
the history of the Christian church, and let's be honest, the history of your life and my life, and we see the same predilection, the same uh, tendency to be blinded to what is clearly in Scripture because of our own selfish ambition. What do we do with that? What do we do with the idea that we could miss this? Because I read this passage and I think, this is so plain. How could the Pharisees have missed this? But you go back to rabbinic writings from the periods before Jesus. No one else is commenting on this passage from, first, from Psalm 110 the way that Jesus does. This is unique and new in his observation. So how, does, how do we miss this? Now, theologians have a term for some of this. It, it could be that it's called mystery. Mystery means things that God has not yet revealed up to this point in human history. Maybe there was no way for people to know that that's what Psalm 110 could mean until Jesus' life and fulfillment. That's possible. I think that that could be a part of it. But there's another part, and I think it's the part of our own sinfulness that we need to own. The reality that even when we learn God's word, even when we memorize God's word, we need to be honest with ourselves and with one another that there is always a selfishness that rests in our soul. Yes, the Spirit dwells in us as Christians. Yes, he gives us eyes to see Scripture. Yes, Scripture is, has perspicuity, to use the theological term. We're able to read it and benefit from it and profit from it. We don't have to be priests. We don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to learn Greek. You and I can read the Bible and benefit from it hugely. But we also need to be aware that we can corrupt our understanding of it or we can limit our understanding of it based on our own selfishness. And we can fall prey to the same problem the Pharisees did. What are you and I missing in Scripture because of our selfishness? Or, to put it another way, in 100 years or 200 years, what will Christians wag their heads at and say, I can't believe Christians in 2020 thought that it was okay to do this, or it was okay not to do that? I I have theories on what those might be. Maybe you do too. Uh, You know, could it be how we treat prisoners in our culture? Could it be how we treat the environment? Could it be how we treat the unborn? Uh, Could it be how we um, treat economically disenfranchised people? I I don't know. We'll we'll see. Uh, If any of you are around in 200 years, you can tell me. But I think we all need to be open and listen to one another, and most importantly, listen to scripture and be willing to be corrected with where our views and our hopes and our ambitions and our selfishness don't align with what God's word plainly says. This is what the Pharisees are unwilling to do. Look at verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. I know that kind of seems like a transition verse or a throwaway verse, but I think it's really the key to understanding this passage. Because do you hear what, what Matthew's describing here? Jesus has just unfolded for the Pharisees this beautiful truth about God's word that they had never noticed before. And if, if their ambitions were pure, wouldn't the question be, tell me more? Show me more. I, I want to go wherever God's word leads. I want to, f- if you're really a Pharisee, and, and in the sense of someone who is purely driven by God's word, and not that all Pharisees were bad. I mean, we read about Nicodemus. We read about Joseph Arimathea. Th- there were Pharisees that really were purely driven to know God. But if that's really what you're about, wouldn't you want to know more about this? And yet, because it doesn't align with their nationalistic hopes, it doesn't align with their political agendas, it doesn't align with their prejudicial beliefs, they just stick their fingers in their ears 
And rather than listening to more from Jesus, they refuse to even ask him another question so that they don't have to hear something they don't want to hear. Oh, God, may that never be us. (laughs) May that never be me. May I never be more interested in protecting my prejudices than I am for listening to your word. God, may I never be someone who's driven more to protect my pre-existing beliefs so that I don't want to hear what is in your word. Because if Jesus is Lord, and that's been our whole series, right? If Jesus is Lord, then we follow him wherever he leads. We listen to him on whatever he speaks about. We follow his word wherever it takes us. And we're quick to listen and quick to change our opinions in line with what he unfolds rather than quick to defend what we've always thought. I wonder for you and for me, if we had been there that day with Jesus and the Pharisees, what would our response have been? Would we have asked follow-up questions? Would we have said, tell me more? Or would we have said, I don't like this, I'm walking away? Think about how you've approached God's word in the last year, in the last five years, in the last 10 years. Are you growing in obedience to what God unfolds for you? Or have you become calcified in your faith? Not strengthened in your faith, but just inflexible. You've basically come to grips with whatever it is that you hold on to, and that's what you're going with. Or are you willing to listen and to change in light of what God unfolds in his word for you? I hope that you memorize God's word. I hope that you're a student of it. I hope that you know it well. The solution is certainly not to ignore it. But as we learn God's word, we also need to be quick to listen to what he says through it. We need to be willing not just to know it intellectually, but to have it change our hearts. To be transformed, as Romans said, by the renewing of our minds. Otherwise, like the book of James says, we become the sort of people who deceive ourselves, knowing God's word but not acting on it. We become people like the Pharisees. Because at the end of the story, what would happen is the Pharisees would stop asking Jesus' Jesus questions, and instead, they would use their political power, together with the Sadducees, to arrest Jesus, to crucify him, and to kill him. They were so intent on preserving what they thought that they were willing to kill Jesus rather than learn from him. And yet, as Psalm 110 predicts, Jesus would be exalted above all. Even in their desire to destroy him, God would elevate him to the place of honor, to his right hand. Psalm 110 would end up being a keystone verse for the early church. It's quoted throughout the New Testament. And the reason is because it predicts what would happen with the resurrection. That God would elevate Jesus, not just from the grave, but to to his seat next to him in heaven. So that he would uh, rule over all. And we have hope as followers of Jesus that one day we will get to see him face to face. May we be people until then who listen to what he says, obey it, and follow him. A couple questions for application as we close our time today. Question number one, how are you doing at listening to Jesus' words and being willing to change your opinion? That's not a a question for you to answer quickly or easily. That's a question for you to pray about and think about with God. God, honestly, am I willing to change my opinions based on what you say in your word? 
And then second question, as we look at the Pharisees and we consider their uh, misexample, their, their challenging uh, but, but misplaced belief in what God's word is like, how have you seen that play out in your life and in the lives of others? And what warning is that about uh, how our souls can become hard towards God? Well, let me close our time together in prayer today. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is inspired and inerrant and it is good and it teaches us all that we need to know for life and godliness. God, thank you that you have given it to us so that we can study it and memorize it and know it. God, I pray for my friends here that we would be people, we'd be a church of the book. And yet, God, it doesn't take long to look through church history, through American history, and certainly to the Pharisees that we read about today, to see that it is not enough to know your word if our hearts are hard towards you. It is not enough to believe the right things if we refuse to listen to what you say. God, may we be people who not only know your word, but act on it, who do it. And when we are wrong, when we discover stuff in your word that reveals that we're wrong, when brothers and sisters in the faith point out stuff that is, is wrong about how we're acting or how we're behaving or how we're, what we're believing about you, God, may we be quick to listen, both individually and as a church, because we want to know you. We want to follow you wherever you lead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.